Good morning. How's everybody? <laughs> Good. All right. Take your Bibles. Genesis, Genesis chapter 13. Any of you have asked where my wife is? And uh, now's a good time for me to tell you that I've left her. We had to go to the, well, we got to go to the Rio Grande Valley this weekend. My daughter-in-law graduated from college yesterday, and so we needed to be there for that. And um, also, uh, we have lots of friends down there, and two different families were really close friends of ours, and their kids got married on Friday night. And uh, since we were going to be there for my daughter-in-law's graduation, uh, we went to that wedding, and I had a piece of that wedding. And so um, we drove down, picked up some of our kids, and drove down there. And then I flew back yesterday, and uh, Teresa will be driving home this afternoon. So if you'll pray for them, I would appreciate it. Um, But that lays the foundation for where I start, because I was telling somebody earlier today, you know, I'm plan this sermon on conflict resolution, and you would expect the Lord to give me the opportunity to work on that before I got up here, and sure enough, part of the flying process did that for me. Um, It really wasn't the flying process as much as it was the trying to get to my car process, because I had uh, anticipated all of this, and as we were heading down to the valley, we actually had to go pick up Lauren and John and... um, wait for them to take some finals in Huntsville, and then we headed down on Thursday. So I just dropped my car off at one of those uh, park-and-ride places, uh, park-and-fly places outside of uh, Bush Airport over there. And uh, the road trammel curse kicked in, and I picked the wrong place to park. And uh, I didn't know that until I got off of the plane last night, and I was trying to get home, and I got off, and you know you have to call them to come get you, and so I did that. And, and I waited and waited and waited and... Uh, after about an hour, uh, I made my third phone call to the place that was supposed to come pick me up. And I, let's just say that I had to remember that I was going to be preaching on conflict resolution today because I had a few things from <laughs> uh, some biblical truth that I really wanted to share with that lady who was supposed to send them over and Uh, the second time their van just sped past where I was standing waiting to be picked up, uh, God reminded me what I was preaching on this morning. So uh, here's a good truth for you. God will see to it that you live a conflict-rich life. Now that's different than what we normally pray for because normally we pray for a conflict-free life. But the reality is that as long as there is one other person alive on this planet, we will find ways to get into conflict with other people. It just comes with the territory. And I will add to to that this basic truth. If we don't learn how to resolve conflict, then the chances are good that we will fall in our faith even. Because much of the conflict that we experience happens within a church context. A friend of mine many years ago now, well over a decade ago, called me. He was pastoring a church in Louisiana, somewhere in the general New Orleans area. And uh, he called me and he said, you know, I continue to have these problems. He was a pastor. He said, I continue to have these problems with my music minister. No problems here. Okay, I just, you need to know. 
We're good. As far as I know, we're good, right? Okay, so this is not about me and Brian. It's not at all, all right? But my friend was having issues with his, uh, with his music minister. His music minister had grown up in the church. He was a guy from West Texas who found his way to Louisiana to pastor a church. In other words, he was an outsider. He continued to have these problems, and uh, he called me one day, and he said, okay, I've decided how I'm going to fix this problem. I said, okay. Now, I knew my friend well. I know he'd grown up on the streets was very, um, uh, very bad at people stuff. And so uh, he said, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go in where the choir meets. And in that church, they had little rooms off like we do, except they were kind of downstairs. And right before the service, the choir would meet on the side, and then they would go up into the choir loft. He said, I'm going to meet down there with them. And I'm going to go into the music minister right before we go in. And uh, let's see, we, I know we have young ears in here, so let me use a metaphor for you. He says, I'm going to do, now, he didn't say it this way, obviously, but you know what ISIS does to their captives? ISIS, Syria, right? He says, I'm going to do that to my music minister, and then I'm going to stand in the pulpit and say, as I hold up, I won, let's worship. Now, here's the deal. That's a true story. He told me that, and I told him, you're crazy if you try to do that. But the reality is that that kind of stuff happens in churches all the time. People literally, well, maybe not literally, figuratively lose their heads over conflict in church. I suspect that one of the reasons there are so many churches is because churches don't do conflict resolution well at all. And unfortunately, that's not a very biblical point of reference. We are tracking this guy named Abram. We've been through chapter 12, and we get him out of his homeland into his new homeland, and then his faith falls, and he finds himself in Egypt, and he's compromised his wife, and he's compromised his integrity, and yet in spite of all of that, God has blessed him And so we pick up today, and I'm going to start reading in verse 1. And i just let you know, I'm very much aware of the time. We're going to fly through much of this. But what I really want to get to today is some practical tools for us to use in conflict resolution. Okay? So, but first we've got to set the, the, the scene here for getting to those tools because Abram's one who gives them to us as we work through this. Chapter 13, verse 1. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had... And Lot went with him into the Negev, into that desert place. Now, Abram, here's part of the problem, right? Now, Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. Some of you said, I'd like to have that problem. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai to the place where he had made an altar at the first. In other words, he comes full circle and he gets back to that point of contact with God. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. And so here's now this ominous kind of a statement that begins to creep into the situation. Here's Abram, and even in spite of all that took him into Egypt and in spite of his failure there, I know that's not a real word, but listen to last week's tape. In spite of his failure there, he finds himself... Blessed by God. And Lot too. 
One of the basic truths for us that we probably should pull from that is that one's, one person's faithfulness often brings blessings to other people. And all of us, could, we could, I could explain that. I don't really have time to do it this morning, but we find it here. Lot is just along for the ride. He goes with Abram. God is dealing with Abram. God is blessing Abram. And so Lot goes with him. And now we find, himself, uh, find Lot here also benefiting from God's blessings. But there's something about God's people that we have the ability to bring conflict out of God's blessings. That's an intriguing reality for me. And yet it seems to be true, no matter where I go, no matter which group of people I deal with, that we find God's hand on people and we find his blessings there. We find churches that God has richly blessed. And yet in those blessings, people just seem to want to fight. I happen to believe that one of the reasons that's true is because we church people are great kingdom builders. I don't mean the kingdom. I mean kingdoms. We build our own little kingdoms and we use the blessings of God often to do that. And in the process of doing that, we set up this ongoing conflict between our kingdom and other kings. You know, I've said it before. I'll continue to say it. It gets ingrained in our thinking. When kingdoms are threatened, kings go to war. I I was down in the valley, as I said, and I was talking to the guy that took over as pastor of the church where I was down there. Uh, he was my youth minister. I have a great relationship with him. And uh, so I, I, a couple of months ago, I received a call relative to him uh, that he was being considered uh, to be pastor of another church. And he didn't even know about that. And so my little kind of jab at him was to let him know that truth that somebody was asking about him. You just have to know when ministers find out that other churches are looking at them, their whole world just goes into a tailspin. And so I enjoy, you know, I'm sick like that, but I enjoyed watching his face as I said, hey, has such and such a church contacted you? He, no, what, what do you mean? And so I gave him the backstory on it that I had talked to this person and they had called me about him and they were doing a little checking and, and I said, so uh, here's the church. You want to know which church it was? He said, yeah. I said, and so I told him, he said, oh, oh. And see, here's a good time for me to let you in on a little preacher uh, cultural lingo, all right? Some churches are known among preachers as man-eating churches. And the church that we're referring to in this conversation, he and I, is one of those man-eating churches. I knew that. One of the reasons I was talking to him about it was to give him a heads up. And he went on to tell me that one of his closest friends had been pastor of that church. It's a large church. Uh, somewhere between Houston and the Rio Grande Valley, very large church, very wealthy church, and a very sick church. His friend had been pastor there for a total of one year. And his friend said that was the worst year of his life. The deal was that that church, and continues to be as far as we know, that church is really kind of run by two families. Interesting in a church with hundreds of families in it that two would call all of the shots. We church people are really good at building kingdoms to the neglect of the kingdom. 
until we find something about conflict hidden in that little truth. All conflict is not because there is unhealthy kingdom stuff going on, although much of what happens in church seems to be that way. In this particular case, the setting for the whole thing is that God has blessed Abram, and by extension, God has blessed Lot, and now they have conflict because of the blessing. Why do God's people allow conflict to grow out of the blessings? That, that's almost, it's counterintuitive. It doesn't seem, you know, you try to connect the dots and those two don't seem like they ought to connect. And yet it, it seems to be the reality of so many churches that God blesses this body of people. We can look at ourselves and look at all that God has done and we are the caretakers of the blessings that God has given to this church over the years and we have to handle that well, be good stewards of that. And yet we always find, and now I'm beyond us and into the church at large, and we find this conflict that happens. God blesses and then we go to war over stuff. I'm intrigued on two different fronts here. First of all, I'm intrigued as I talk to people and I get the, these two basic responses. One is, well, I don't really like conflict. And the other one is, well, you know, I, I, I kind of enjoy that little bit of mixing it up every once in a while. Let me, let me just tell you, okay, the idea is to stay on the horse, not to fall off on either side, all right? If you're one of those who hates conflict, First of all, I kind of get that, but let me just bring you into reality and say you better learn to deal with conflict whether you hate it or not because it's going to be in your life. For those of you who love conflict and you like to kind of mix it up every once in a while, that's a spiritual problem and you need to make sure that you keep it under check. What happens? Here's what I tend to hear from people. We're on this kingdom thing and why we have conflict in the first place. And I often hear people say, now now they don't know that they would necessarily call it conflict. I'll get to that in a little bit. But they will say, well, I got offended by this or so-and-so hurt my feelings. And that's a direct quote of four million people I've heard in my lifetime. Well, they hurt my feelings. I should tell you, uh, if if you, hmm, let me have to say this right. In love, I want to say, um, don't say to me, somebody hurt your feelings. Okay? I love you enough that I'm going to correct that. You should know, in my house growing up, Lauren loved to get her feelings hurt. Except they don't fly in our house. All right? My standard reply to Lauren was, if so-and-so hurts your feelings, you better get over it before you come home because I'm going to hurt more than your feelings if you come whining around the house. So we created a monster in her with that. Road Trammell family motto is just suck it up. That's a terrible family motto, but that's one that we seem to go with for a long time. He makes me so mad. You ever hear that from people? He just makes me so mad. And some of you wives are going, oh yeah, oh yeah. She hurt my feelings. In all the Christian love I could muster, I want you to hear me say this. Nobody in the world has enough power to hurt your feelings. Nobody in the world has enough power to make you mad. Those are choices that you make. 
Now, I get the fact that they may have bad behavior and they may be aggressive to you and they may even attack you, but you have the power to choose how you respond to that. So don't say, he made me mad. Just go ahead and call it what it is. I chose to get mad over what he did. Do you understand the difference in what I'm saying there? Now, here's why that's important. Because whether you're one who tends to be hurt over what people do or say, or one who tends to get mad over what people do or say, the reality is God is in there somewhere. And what you are responsible for doing is finding God in the middle of that pain, in the middle of that aggression, in the middle of that emotion. And as you find him in the midst of that, figure out how he wants you to respond to it. It's a choice. And here's why I make such a big deal out of that. When we choose to give somebody else the power to hurt my feelings or make me mad or whatever we want to say with that, when I choose to give them that power, I have made them stronger than God is in my life. That's idolatry. Isn't it just a little bit wrong to think that the person who hurts me the most I've Worship them by giving them all this power and therefore all of my attention and so all of it goes there instead of finding God in the middle of it and saying, okay, God, how do I get through this? The conflicts of life are real. How we respond to them are critical for us. So many people are walking through life just kind of bouncing off of one crisis into the next, into the next. And I promise you there is a better way for us to live as God's people. So that's why I want us to to wear that. And I want to start there and say, take that and put it on and wear it. Because if you can get to the point where you're not living at the mercy of other people and their decisions, then you may find that life can be a lot happier than what it is when you're dependent on them to dictate your emotions. Here's another reason that I say all of that, and we find this in the second part of verse 7. The question that I have now is, why does the writer include this statement? Second part of verse 7. I'm just going to read the whole verse. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock, and at that time the Canaanites and the Perizzites were living in the end. Why would the writer of Genesis include that statement? That seems to have nothing to do with the flow of the story. Here's my best theological answer to that question. Why did the writer of Genesis put that in there? I don't know. But I can tell you that there's some truth we can take from it. The Canaanites and the Perizzites were the outsiders. Pagans, to be exact. And as God is developing Abram and his faith and his ability to trust God, And God has blessed Abram in the midst of that. God's dealing with Abram. Remember, he set up shop on that pathway between the ruin and the house of El. And he's doing his own worship there. And those people, those pagans, as they come by, would be watching that. They see God's blessing on him. Here's this guy who came in from the outside and look at all the stuff. He went to Egypt and he came back with all this stuff. And what is intended by God to be a signal to a world that needs him, now we find that the redemptive community of God is fighting 
and slipped into this statement now. The Canaanites, the Perizzites, let's, let's refashion that and bring it into our day. The unchurched people were still in the land. In other words, I'll bring it down to the principle for us. Our behavior within the church is observable to those people who are outside the church. Let me tell you something. The people outside the church see the people inside the church fighting all the time. They don't want anything to do with that. It doesn't matter if you have the best, slickest, most marketable kind of evangelistic witness in your witnessing toolbox. You go to talk to somebody about coming to know Christ and they've seen a church that cuts people up and dices them and spits them out. They don't want any part of that. Watching a deal this morning between, well, during the Sunday school hour, watching this video statement of one of the leading church guys of our time and he's talking about why people don't want to go to church, why people are disinterested in church. You know what the number one reason he gave was? People are disillusioned by a church that says they're all about family and all about living together and doing life together. But the practical expression of that doesn't look anything like the verbal expression of it. Be careful how you treat each other. Be careful that as we come into conflict that we call it what it is, we deal with it. Now we're into those Points of how. So let me give you these things for your toolbox. Three big ideas, and the last one is going to have three ideas under it. So how do you deal with conflict? What does Abram teach us here as it relates to this? Here's the first one. We need to recognize strife and call it what it is. Look at verse 8. And then Abram said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. I think it's interesting that Abram didn't go to Lot. As far as we know, he didn't go to him and start complaining to him about the way his tribesmen or his herdsmen were treating Abram's herdsmen. He doesn't go in there and just kind of just roll it over and say, well, you know, it's really not that big a deal. It's it's really all okay. We, We just got a little bit of a misunderstanding. He didn't do that. He goes in and he says, Let's deal with this. Recognize the strife in your life and call it what it is. In other words, don't get into the, well, he hurt my feelings. No, you've chosen not to get along with him. That's calling it what it is. Here's the second one. Identify the source of the strife. Now, let me go ahead and just go ahead and just get real practical here for a second. In America today, there is a huge segment of the population who's walking around major thoroughfares, major business opportunities, and they're saying this, hands up, don't shoot. You know what I'm talking about? How many of you? Just nod your head. At least let me think you're awake for a second, okay? You know what I'm talking about with that? What's the problem there? Don't don't answer this one, okay? (laughs) What's the problem with that? How about this one? How about these major athletes in professional sports who come out wearing shirts that say, I can't breathe? You know what I'm talking about? Okay. Now, that's a reality in American society today. 
the question is, what is the reality there? Those are statements made by a segment of the population that believe that they have been targeted unjustly by law enforcement. I'm not here to argue whether they have or not. I want us to get behind it, okay? Because the strife that is there, the conflict in our society is such that what seems to be happening from my vantage point is that half of the, well, no, not even half. Some of the population is jumping on board saying, oh, yeah, that's right, and the rest of the population is going, that's just a bunch of bull. My suspicion is that as soon as I brought it up, some of you went immediately to an emotional response to that. What is the problem? Remember, the big idea that we have here is that we need to identify the source of the strife for the conflict. In that particular instance, for our nation and for our national culture, what's the real problem there? Here's what I think. Two things. First of all, I think for the most part, America would be a lot better off if we had no media whatsoever. You need to be really careful about swallowing the propaganda that news organizations are putting out. And I don't care which side of the fence you're on. It's propaganda for the most part. But here's a better statement of what I think is the real source of the strife here. I think that what we have as a country is a disintegration of the family unit. And the real issue is not so much that we have this condition that's happening regardless of the racial part of it clearly there's a racial problem here this is the 50s again in large measure but a lot of what's happening here in my opinion it comes back to America and our value systems and the fact that we have multiple value systems that are on the table in this country that is stretched from coast to coast north to south, border to border, and yet we have these pockets of different cultural values. And the family is lost in that. And the the laws of our society and the judgments that are coming from courts and stuff seems to be pushing us further away from good, solid family values. I'm not chicken a little. I'm not running around like the sky is falling or anything like that. But those choices where we're allowing children to be raised with no value teaching pushes us to see kids with no sense of what it means to submit to authority. And yeah, you're going to get chaos out of that if you live long enough to see it. Maybe that's part of what the real problem is for us. Clearly racial problems the godless culture that seems to be pervasive in American society is coming to full bloom. There's a reason for what's happening. The conflict is real. We will never resolve the conflict unless we call it what it is. Because what happens is we start treating symptoms rather than the problem. Abram comes to Lot and he says to him, hey man, we got issues here. And the reality is that the issues that we have here 
are going to make it different. Let there be no strife between me and you, between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. He boils it down. We have to operate from this value. And yet we live in a society. And then if we're not careful, we fall into this in our own conflict resolution. If we're going to do it at all, that's the resolution I mean, then we fall into treating the symptoms rather than dealing with the problem. You know, when I was in my spin-up to having back surgery a number of years ago, I went to these doctors. Uh, I didn't go doctor shopping like some people do, but I went to my doctor. He sent me to a pain management guy. They were loading me up with narcotic pain relievers. You can smell colors on those things, right? You know the worst thing you can do for a guy who had a drug history? Just give him narcotic pain relievers. If one's good, 18 must be great. That's the mentality. It's sick. Do you know what I found with that? It didn't matter how many pain relievers they gave me, the problem was still there. You can't just deal with the symptoms. You've got to get to the root of the problem. So... The first big idea is recognize the strife, call it what it is. The second one is identify the source of the strife. And the third one then is take action that deals with the problem. This has three different parts to it. I'll get through these very quickly for you because I know it's time to go. Abram gives us the example here. Out of verse 9, he says, remember he's in this discussion with Lot, is not the whole land before you? What we see there is Abram is going to the person and dealing with it. He doesn't go out on the backside and beat up, verbally or otherwise, Lot's herdsmen. He goes to the person. We have an issue. I don't know why it is that people are, especially Christian people, are so resistant to this. People just don't like to do this. Oh, you know, I, I, I just, nah, I'll just let it go. Well, if you could just let it go, that's fine. But most of the time, people don't just let it go. It just seethes in there. It's like a fire burning inside of them. And so the suggestion is, well, go to them. Go deal with them. Go talk about it. Oh, no, I can never. I just hate conflict. Well, that's not true. You seem to be nursing it pretty heavily. This is the hard step. We don't really want to do this because it, it brings the confrontation, the, con- the conflict right up to a head. I'm going to go talk to this person. We're going to deal with it. You know, in case you have an issue with what I'm saying, first of all, it's good enough that Abram did it. That should teach us something. But there's another guy. He got a little bit of credibility in most churches who talked about this, a guy by the name of Jesus who said in Matthew chapter 18, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Now, wait a minute. Let me give you the Baptist version of that verse. If your brother sins against you, go and tell 40 other people about how sorry that person is. Why do we ignore what Jesus says? I cannot tell you. How much of my time as a minister through the years is given over to trying to get people to do this? Guy comes to me, you know, you need to do something about that sorry, no good blank. 
I used to ask them, what do you want me to do? I stopped doing that because they have an idea what they want me to do. I started just going to what Jesus says. Here's my response to that. You should know this in case you plan on coming to me about that sorry, no good, whoever it is. Have you gone to them yourself and talked to them? Oh, no, no, no. I couldn't do that. I mean, after all, you're the pastor. Yes, I am. And I know scripture well enough to tell you, you need to go talk to them. And until you talk to them, I don't think it's a big enough deal for me to have to deal with it. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Jesus goes on there, and I'm not going to take the time to read it today. He goes on there to highlight the fact that uh, he knows that he's not going to listen to you sometimes. And so there's other steps to take. Deal with it. Go to the person. Here's the second part of this. Remember, this is all take action that deals with the problem. Here's the second one. Be aggressive in dealing with the problem. Hear what I said. Be aggressive in dealing with the problem. I didn't just put a period at the end of aggressive, okay? Because a lot of people like that. They're not just going to be aggressive. You want me to take, I take it on a preacher. Who do you want me to go see? Most days I want to give them a list, but I try not to do that. You know, normally we have these two extremes. Remember, you have the one that's the withdrawal part. I just pull back. I know I'm not going to deal with it. I'm not going to go deal with them. <laughs> my brother, we had this in spades in my family. My brother, one of the meanest guys I ever met, and yet God changed him, and he's one of the most loving guys I've ever met. Uh, when we moved to Houston, there were some kids down the street that were picking on him. And he came home one day, and he was young. I mean, probably just barely school age. And he came home one day, and he said, hey, they're picking on me. And my dad looked at him, what do you mean by that? And they talked through it. And uh, my brother was basically crying about it. Remember what I said the Road Travel family motto is? So my dad said to him, you go down there and you clean that kid's clock and don't you come home until you do. See, that's both sides. That's the withdrawal side and that's the aggressive side all in one. Let me give you this picture. I'm almost done. I'll be done. In those days when I was running from God and as a young adult living totally on the outside of God's grace, I had a friend. His sister was probably almost 30 years old and uh, all part of the, fam- the, the running bunch that we were in. Uh, some people in that group that I was running with had already done hard time for drug abuse and trafficking and some of those kind of things, some really sketchy people. And Jimmy's sister went missing one day. And he called me, and uh, after she had been missing for several days, he called me. He said, hey, they found Sue. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, she's alive, but she's not well. She said, I want you to go with me. They've got her in hiding. Um, And uh, the story on that was that her boyfriend, a guy named Rusty, had taken her out, um, tied her, uh, bound and gagged her, took her out into the bad reaches of um, the oil field out there. And in the middle of the night, had set her off to the side and was digging a shallow grave for her. And she somehow managed to get away. Uh, when we went over to see her, she was as beat up as I have ever seen anybody. And I've seen some pretty bad situations. 
She's a picture of a lot of people in life for us. A lot of people inside the church who have been manhandled by mean people, aggressive people. How do you deal with conflict? If you're one of the ones who doesn't mind it and are willing to go beat somebody up and tear them apart, you probably need to get with the Lord about your attitude. Here's the last, by the way, that's verse 9. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. And if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. Abram deals with this problem aggressively, but he doesn't beat Lot up to deal with it. Which points me to the last one, and that is you've got to be willing to let the other person go first. With all that is on the line here, isn't it interesting that Abram says in verse 9, you choose first. See, that's not in us. Our deal tends to be, I'm going to get mine. See, that's back to that kingdom building thing. I'm going to get mine. And if I have to, I'm going to make sure you don't get yours so that I can have mine. This is, I call this a preemptive strike of humility. And just for the record, if you struggle with that, here's another passage of Scripture that might help you out of the New Testament, a guy by the name of Paul, who says this, and it ties straight into conflict resolution. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than ourselves. If we took that heart... If we took that too hard, I wonder how peaceful our churches would be. Let's pray.